Um, it's such a, such a special time in the year, um, and it is very kind of full circle. I was thinking about it this past week. Um, this time, maybe three years ago, we were also finishing up a 21-day fast. Three years ago. Um, it was right before a leadership retreat. And at that leadership retreat, you know who was the speaker? Alan Hood. Yes. And um, it, was, it's, it feels very full circle. Like, oh, we find ourselves here once again. Um, and I remember when we were doing this 21-day fast, we're like super militant. We're like, we're going to do this for the Lord, and it's going to be awesome, and the Lord will give us a reward. And it was like really like, like, like a butch, you know, like very like, yeah, we're going to fast for the Lord. Um, and then Ellen Hood comes, and the first message he preaches is like, fasting's all about longing and love. Like it, it shouldn't be about this, like I'm going to do this amazing thing for the Lord, and I'm going to prove how much I love him. But it's like, it's about longing. Uh, that's, that's where, that's the place from which we fast. And so today it is day 17 of our 21 day fast. I've heard so many amazing things about how people are engaging in different ways. Some are doing uh, media fast. Some are doing partial fast. Some are doing liquid, some Daniel. I'm sure there's some creative ones here and there. Um, some are doing Netflix, I think. Yeah. If that's your idol, then that's how you should be uh, fasting. Uh, but the whole point really is to make space for us to pursue the Lord. It's not about like, I'm going to give this amazing sacrifice to the Lord. It's about, I need to make space in my life to deliberately and intentionally pursue the Lord, whatever that takes. And 21 days is actually, you know, pretty short. It's just three weeks. It's not like a life change, but um, I'm praying that this last, the last few days that we have in fasting, that they would be joyful ones. Sometimes towards the end of the fast, all you, like, like if you're fasting food, like you're thinking already, you're planning meals. You're like, I'm going to break with this and then I'm going to have this and this. And if you're, you know, you know, uh, you know, Netflix or something, you're like, okay, I'm going to queue up everything that I'm going to watch right after a break fast. And that kind of defeats the purpose, you know, defeats the purpose in that it's not like you're counting down the minutes until you don't have to do this anymore. It should be the sense of, I know it's hard, okay? So I'm not, I'm not discounting that it's, that it, I'm not saying it's not hard, but there's also sweetness to it. There's a part of you that should feel like, oh, there was something special about the last two and a half weeks where I was able to give myself fully um, and I was able to pursue the Lord in a way that I haven't in a long time. And so as the fast is wrapping up, there should be a bittersweetness to it. Not like, ah, I can't wait for it to end, but like, this is a really special time with the Lord. And guess what? We don't get to fast on the other side of eternity. This is one of the few things that we actually get to do on this side, where we get to long for him. We get to fast in order to draw close to him. We get to do this for him, and it's not an obligation. It is a privilege. It should be a joy. It should be a lifestyle as well. Yeah, thank you. I feel like it's a shampoo commercial. <laughs> thank you. Um, Yes. So, um, yes, it's day 17 of 21. So hopefully the next few days are going to be really enjoyable and, um, an encouragement. If you set your, your, your bar really high and you're like, I am going to, I'm going to water fast for 21 days. And then by like day one and a half, you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, so this is my encouragement to you. Whatever you were able to give to the Lord, it is a joyful, delightful sacrifice unto him. And he's pleased by it. That's number one. So don't feel condemnation. Don't feel like, oh my, like all these other Christians seem to be doing great. Why am I the only one who's struggling? Don't feel that way. 
Um, that's not what fasting is about, you know. It's not about comparing. It's not about, you know, seeing, like, who can do the most. It's, it's about your sacrifice unto the Lord. And second thing is, if you have derailed, you know, derailed intentionally or unintentionally in the last few days, it's not too late to, to come back in, you know. Just pick it back up where you were. And that's all there is to it. You don't need to do penance. You don't need to, you know, pray certain prayers of, you know, just, you just jump back in and there's going to be grace for that as well. So if this is the first time you're hearing about the 21 day fast, you know, feel free to jump in. It's just a really special time for us to do this together as a community. Um, So today um, I'm going to be finishing a three part series that we've been preaching on regarding our new vision statement as a church. So a few weeks ago, um, we revealed to the church, this is going to be our new vision statement, calling all to the feast. And ironically, instead of calling people to a feast, we call them to a fast. But, but it has everything to do, feasting has everything to do with fasting as well. So the three parts of this vision statement, this is just review. A few weeks ago, I preached about the great commandment. So what it means to love God and love other, others. It's a choice. It's a sacrifice. It's an invitation to wholeheartedly love God and also love one another through volition, affection, intellect, resources, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Then last week, we had Pastor JP, and he preached on the great commission. So he touched on the motive behind the great commission, who was blessed by that message, by the way? Man, I was like so rocked by that message. I felt like God was doing really some supernatural work in, in our hearts, right? So he touched on the motive behind it more than just the mechanics behind it, if that makes sense. Why do we want to engage in the Great Commission? And he made this really, really important point. It's not mere human compassion for the lost. It's not just if you muster up enough like, oh, man, there's lost people out there. They need to hear the gospel. If you muster this up enough, maybe I'll get to a point where I do something. That is there, but that's not the biggest or the greatest of all the motives that we have for the Great Commission. The number one is he is worthy. God is simply worthy of worship in every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God is worthy of the worship of every tribe and tongue. So that is what leads us, sorry, what leads us into the Great Commission. And today we're going to be going into the third part then of this series, and it's talking about the forerunner calling, what it means to prepare the way of the Lord. So it, it means, um, it means that when we are loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we are loving one another with that same intentionality, when we are engaging in the Great Commission, we're doing all of this unto something. There is an end point in mind. It isn't this like, I'm just going to try my best and that's all there is to it. And I'm just going to take it one day at a time and hopefully it'll lead somewhere. That's not what Christian faith really is leading into. There's a very clear end point according to the Bible. So when we talk about the forerunner calling, uh, when we talk about the forerunner calling, it has everything to do with that. What does it look like to be a generation that prepares the way of the Lord. So there's, um, there's a passage that actually, um, Alan Hood had spoken on when he talked about the heart behind fasting. And this is what he talked about. He talked about Mark two eighteen, and it is, uh, when John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting. So they were doing the right works. And then people came to Jesus and they asked him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? 
but your disciples do not fast. So they're asking like, your disciples seem to be kind of lax on this fasting thing. You should, you know, kind of kick it up a notch. You know, they're slacking here. And um, he's being asked, why aren't they doing what everybody else is doing? And then Jesus, he answers in this way. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. So it used to be that fasting was used for purification, attaining the right standing in order to approach God. You couldn't just willy-nilly just saunter into God's presence. You actually had to go through rites of purification. You had to prepare yourself in order to enter in. And that was what fasting was also used for. Um, If I do this, I get this. It's basically an exchange. But something profound had happened that would change everything, and that is that the bridegroom had come. The bridegroom had come. And you standing before the Lord, you're standing, your ability to stand before the Lord is no longer predicated on your ability to purify yourself, consecrate yourself in order for you to stand before God's presence. But it is now contingent on something completely of a different order. It is a new covenant where your acceptance is not based on what you do, but what on he has done. And on that day, when he is taken away, then they will fast, but they will do it out of a very different reason. Does that make sense? Where the motive for fasting, it used to be, man, I need to draw close to God. I need to come to him. And if I don't fast, then there's no way for me to reach God. Now, on the other side, now that Jesus has come, first of all, when he's there, they don't fast. The bridegroom is there. All their longing, everything that they've longed for, it's there in front of them. But when he is taken away, there will be a time, it says, there will be a day when his disciples will fast. But it will be because the bridegroom is not there. It is, in essence, a longing, not just mentally assenting, not just emotionally kind of giving yourself to this, but even in your body, even physically, even in the natural, you're longing for someone. And it is for the return of Christ. Does that make any sense? So the, the motive behind fasting is very different. So now if we were to jump back to what it means to be a foreigner, just the dictionary definition, it is that which precedes and gives notice of the coming of another. So other words that are um, interchangeable with this are herald, harbinger, messenger or precursor so let me put it to you in very concrete terms for example if there was a king who was trying to get from city a to city b right now it's just you open up neighbor and you look up okay how do you get there? you take this line then you transfer and then you walk and then you take this bus and it's very simple back then it wasn't like that Back then, it wasn't even paved roads. So if, even if you were to think, okay, I need to drive from city A to city B, now it's like all pavement, it's already, there's no like bushes or thorns or rocks or nothing like that has happened in order to obstruct your path. But back then, that wasn't the case. So there actually needed to be someone, if there was going to be a king going from city A to city B, there needed to be a precursor, someone who would actually go through that road, walk that road before the king actually did, and literally, like literally, prepare the road 
for the king or for whoever was coming behind him. So it meant, you know, going on a horse. And if there's something that would snag the carriage, you know, the, the carriage wheel, or like if there's been rocks here that fell, or if there's vegetation that grew in and nobody was looking. And so they would actually literally prepare the way for the person that was coming behind them. So that when the person that they were representing came after him, it would be a smooth transition in. It wasn't just that as well. Imagine you were living in city B and um, you had no idea that the king was coming. Now we just like, well, it's text, you know? Okay. Hey, this person is coming on so-and-so state, like make sure that you're ready. Back then they didn't have that, right? Uh, And so they actually need to be somebody from city A who would go to city B and tell them the king is coming. The king is coming, make preparations, be ready. So it wasn't just the road needed to be unobstructed. what a forerunner is, literally. Today, um, we actually use this word, um, I believe in sports. I am definitely not an athlete, and I don't know anything about sports. But there's actually somebody who runs a course. So, for example, if you're doing track, uh, there's somebody who would, is not participating in the race, but somebody who runs the track to make sure that it's in good shape, that there are, are no inconsistencies. They'd actually forerun, like literally run before the actual race to make sure that that is ready. Same thing with skiing, apparently. I don't know much about skiing either, but apparently there's a forerunner in skiing. They will go through the skiing course in order for the competitors to have no obstruction when it's time to actually compete. And so there's different things that go into being a forerunner. The first thing is that there's going to be a pioneering side to it. It means that you are going to have to break ground. It means that you're probably going to be out of sync with everybody else in some sense. You're going to have to go before and you're going to have to break ground as well. I didn't know how else to say this. I just, I don't know if this is even a word, preparer. Um, So prepare, you actually have to prepare the conditions for the arrival of the person they're forerunning for. And then lastly, but not least, it is that they are a sign. They are pointing to another person. So if somebody is forerunning from city A to city B, it is not, hey, Susie is coming, Susie is coming, Susie's here. It is, hey, so-and-so is coming, so-and-so is coming. And so they see me, they know that I'm pointing to somebody coming right behind me. And so I am not representing myself. I'm representing someone else. And so I am a sign for a person that is to come. So they aren't there to represent themselves. They aren't there to be received themselves, but they are there to point people to the person coming after them. And so the question of what a forerunner is, is largely predicated on chiefly on who or what they are forerunner for. So we can't say, yeah, we're a forerunner church without knowing who we're forerunning for, right? Right? It can't just be, I'm just a forerunner to, I don't know. And this is this idea that, that you can forerun without actually forerunning for someone. Does that make sense? Who or what are they forerunning for? That will determine what kind of forerunner you are. So if we were to zoom out, let's take a look at the gospel message. I'm a big fan of timelines because I'm a very visual person. So here we go one more time. So if we were to think about it, the very, very beginning, it started off with a garden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and created the earth. And then it's like literally like right here we fell, like, like right here. 
three chapters in, we didn't even make it through three chapters, right? Three chapters in, mankind falls, right? And then all throughout this, can we be reconciled with God? And then right in the middle, we see the glory of the gospel where we see the cross. Jesus Christ comes, um, the, the son who was not created an uncreated being becomes man enters steps into human history and he dies for those who don't even understand who he is and that is what happens right in the middle now if i were to tell you can you just can you um present the gospel to me most people would say okay you were created by god uh, but mankind fell into sin and then Finally, Jesus came and he died and he rose again. And that is my gospel presentation. Ta-da, you know, but this is an incomplete presentation of the gospel. This is an incomplete presentation of the gospel. You cannot talk about just up until the resurrection. All of that is pointing towards a greater culmination, consummation that is to come. A gospel without the return of of Christ is a gospel without hope. One more time. A gospel without the return of Christ is a gospel without hope. The best that the church would have to offer if we were to preach a gospel without the return of Christ would be, look, here's a comforter who's going to help you for the next 50 years that you're here on this earth. And good luck, you know, and that's it. But we're talking about someone who died, who rose again, who ascended into heaven and is now preparing a place for his bride. And there's going to be a day when he comes back to rule the earth. There's going to be a day when all of history, everything that is building up towards this is going to be fulfilled in this one point in history with the coming back of Jesus Christ. This it's an equivalent of me saying, imagine you're dating, imagine you are dating, um, and your boyfriend proposed to you and you're super happy. You're like, Oh my gosh, look at this ring. Like, Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to start looking, you know, at, at, at bridal dresses and like, I'm going to prepare for all this. And then time wore on and you're like, are we not actually going to plan for the wedding? And, and the boyfriend's like, oh, I thought that was enough. And you're like, no, what are you talking about? This is a sign of promise for something that is going to be fulfilled. An engagement is not enough. And in the same way, when we think about the gospel, a gospel without the return of Christ, the fulfillment of everything that has been promised, we've only gotten a foretaste, a guarantee, like a, a, a like a, like a sample, we, we get a, a free sample, um, but we're, we're going to have a full meal to come. And we cannot talk about the gospel just in terms of Jesus came, he died and he rose again, but you have to talk about, he's actually going to return someday. And the life that you live right now actually has eternal consequences as well. So a gospel that is preached without the return of Christ is an income incomplete gospel. Now, if we think about these three different points in time, there was somebody who shows up right before Jesus enters the scene. And that is a forerunner, a forerunner for the first coming of Christ. According to Isaiah, this person would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Can we all turn together? I actually don't have slides for this, but can we turn to uh, John 1, 
Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. So if you have your phones, you can open up your phones. Um, If you have your physical Bible with you. So Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 19. Now this was, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Uh, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So we're going to hear about who this forerunner is. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who have been sent question him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. Translation, he is the one I am forerunning for. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So it means there was this forerunner called John. And he was basically the cousin of Jesus. He was born six months before Jesus was. And his entire life, his entire uh, purpose in life was to prepare the way for someone who was coming right after him. Everything he preached, the way that he lived, the choices that he made, how he baptized, all these things were in preparation for someone who would come. And he made it very clear This ministry is not about John the Baptist. This is not johnthebaptist.com. Like, this is not about me. I am pointing to another person who I am unworthy to tie his sandals. This is a person who I am signaling to, and that is what a forerunner is. Now, if we were to turn now uh, uh, just one page to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As it is with a lot of ministry, there was some competition that started to arise. And so if we pick up at verse 32, chapter 3, verse 30, uh, 22, chapter 3, verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. So up until now, it was just John the Baptist baptizing, right? And now it seems like Jesus is kind of jumping into the game, right? And now verse 23, now John was also baptizing at Anan near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing. And everyone is going to him, meaning we're losing followers here. Jesus, do something about that. We have competition here. And then, oh, sorry, not Jesus, John. John gave competition. Verse 27, to this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride 
belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. In other words, he must, other translations say, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is one of the most important things about what it means to be a foreigner. There will be a time when you will be tempted to start pointing, not at someone else, but to yourself. Like this is going to start being about me. My ministry is starting to grow. It's, it's, it's starting to become about me. And there will be a point where that temptation comes. But the role of a foreigner is always going to be pointing at someone else. It's always going to be, he must increase, I must decrease. What God has given me, what he's apportioned for me, what I have for myself, it's given by God. And that is sufficient. But there's someone else that I'm pointing to, someone else's glory, someone else's reputation, someone else's message. Someone else's hope. Can you imagine, according to, uh, sorry, can we continue reading um, John verse, uh, chapter 3? Sorry, I need to find my place again. So we left off at verse 30, and he continues on verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth. And speaks as one from the earth. He's talking about himself. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives a spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. He's basically saying he's a real deal. He's a reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. My ministry is about this man. All of hope, all of life, all of salvation is not on whether you believe me. You need to believe this guy. If you believe in me and reject this guy, you're still under God's wrath. That's what he said in the last verse. You need to believe in this guy in order for you to be saved and have eternal life. So this is the forerunner mandate. It is to point to someone else. It is to proceed and prepare the way. Yes, but the biggest and most important mission that a forerunner has is Avoid the temptation of pointing to yourself and always point to Christ. And so if we were to go back to this wonderful timeline, there was one who preceded the first coming of Christ. And there's also a generation that the Bible talks about preceding the second coming of Christ. This is what we call the end times generation. This is what we call people who carry the spirit of John the Baptist. So this is what it means to be a forerunner church as well when we think about what kind of church would be a church that precedes the second coming of christ there's certain things um, that will characterize this kind of church and these are just four different ways the first is that they're going to be marked by intimacy it is the love for the bridegroom 
that will keep them persevering. It is love for the bridegroom that will keep them in a place that is sacrificial, in a place where you don't count the cost, in a place where you are able to love someone else without an agenda. It is that place from where it all starts. Intimacy. It starts in the place of intimacy. The second thing is intentionality. There's a focus. There's a positioning. There's a specializing that is required in order to be a forerunner. If John the Baptist was like, well, I just got to do this once a week. And so I'll just chill the rest of the time, six days a week. I'm not really a forerunner. No, this was someone who put all his eggs in this basket. This was someone who lived an entire lifetime and lived a lifestyle that was all catered and tailored towards this goal. And so there was an intentionality. It didn't casually happen. It didn't just accidentally happen. There was an intentionality, a focusing, a positioning, and a specializing that he went through in order to be a forerunner. The third is understanding. Now, have you ever stumbled on any of the end times passages as you're reading the Bible? They're sprinkled all throughout the Bible. It's not just Revelation, um, and it's not just like Matthew 24. It's sprinkled all throughout the Bible. And when you read that, and you read about what happens to the people of God, and you read about there's people who are going to, their love is going to grow cold. There's people who are going to start believing in false teachers. There's people who are going to give up in the middle of persecution. When you think that, you're like, but not me. You know, something in us is like, it'll happen to other people, just not me. Like, I know my Bible. I know my gospel. I am not going to, you know, believe in some false prophet. I'm not going to bear the mark of the beast. I'm not going to, you know, you start thinking all these things and somehow we exempt ourselves from this but the bible is very clear there's going to be people who fall away based on four different things one is offense first one is offense if you have read the book of revelation and you think this is the same cuddly fuzzy jesus that is going to be very easy to embrace and very easy to accept you're very wrong the book of revelation talks about two-thirds of the earth dying that in itself should be very offensive. Now, if you think that you can go through something like that without like, God, how would you let this happen? I thought you were good. Without that thought creeping in, I think you are overestimating perhaps what you think and how you feel about the Jesus that you know. It's the Jesus in the full gospel, in the full counsel of God, the full Bible is not a, a Jesus that is very easy to just readily accept. Like, he's my buddy. He's this really cool dude who's okay with my sins, and he'll kind of turn a blind eye, and we're, we're cool. We're bros. That's not the Jesus that we see. We see, yes, a Jesus who is meek like a lamb, but also he's going to come back as a lion. And if we don't begin to uh, familiarize ourselves with entire character of who God is, entire character of who Jesus is, Offense is for sure going to start knocking on your door. Offense. It's the first thing. Second, your love will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Where passion dies, commitment dies, begin to compromise, begin to give in here and there. And you think, 
when you're at the top of your game, when you're super close to, to God, you're like, that never happened to me. Maybe that happened to my neighbor. That happened to my sibling. That will happen to my whatever, but, but not me. I'm going to stand strong till the end. And that's, that's again, overestimating perhaps um, where you think you are. Third, deceived by false teachers. It says many are going to be deceived by false teachers. Um, if we don't know the Bible, we too are going to be deceived by false teachers. And that's just a fact of life. There's going to be people who are very convincing, very gifted in oratory, and even they're going to have a massive following. And there's going to be no way to distinguish whether they're a false teacher or somebody who's teaching the truth unless you know the Bible for yourself. Unless you know the Bible for yourself. Pastor to know the Bible. When that, I'm going to bank on my house church leader to know the Bible. Not I'm going to bank on my pastor to know the Bible when that time comes. You need to know the Bible as well. False teachers are going to come. And unless we are grounded and anchored in the scriptures, there's no way for us to know and have wisdom and understanding. And then lastly is perseverance. Um, it's going to be hard. And it's going to be long as well. And the temptation will be to give up halfway through. All of us have been through seasons where there's at least one point where you're like, you know what? I don't think I want to do this anymore. Like, I think I'm done. I think my glory days were behind. And I think I can settle for this for the rest of my life. I think this is my lot in life. And there's been seasons where we go through that, where we are on the brink of giving up. And we're like, I, th I think I've done enough. Now I'm just going to wait for Jesus to come back. I did my quota for my lifetime back in my 20s. And now I'm, I'm set. And there's going to be a temptation for us uh, to give up in the waiting, give up in the middle of all of it. And so these are four different things that actually will characterize um, a, a forerunner generation. Intimacy, intentionality, understanding and perseverance can we quickly turn to matthew 25 quickly turn to matthew 25 so matthew 25 when we talk about the parable of the 10 virgins it comes right after an entire passage regarding signs of the end of the age. So this is not just, you know, this is not in, in a vacuum, but this is talking about the end times as well. It's continuing that same thread. And starting from verse 1, it says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, so they're being distinguished as foolish and wise. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some, of your, uh, some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready, 
who already went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So this passage is talking about very clearly laying out that there's a window of opportunity for you to be prepared. A window of opportunity for you to be prepared. There's going to be a point where it is too late, where things should have been done by then. And when the bridegroom comes, that is already too late. So we're talking about a window of time where you're called, you're commanded to be prepared. And it's going to be something, there's many interpretations to why oil would be the most common interpretation for it is intimacy. The oil of intimacy. You cannot bank on somebody else's faith, somebody else's history with the Lord, somebody else's prayer life, somebody else's QT. It's going to be on you. Nobody else is going to be able to do that for you. You either know him or you don't. He either knows you or he doesn't. That is, that is what Jesus said. Like, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. The ones that were prepared, that had their lamps full of oil, I, I know them, but I don't know these other ones. So there's, there's, there's a call for us to prioritize cultivating intimacy with the Lord. That is something that I can't do for anybody. I, I can't do this for anybody. I wish there were shortcuts. I wish there were ways in which, you know, I can like, in part, here's like half my intimacy. I'm going to throw it at Lydia and Lydia's going to catch it. And it's going to be her intimacy. That's not how it works. Lydia has to, I'm sorry, I'm putting you at, Lydia has to develop her own walk with the Lord. She has to know him and he has to know her. doesn't matter whether I know him or not. When it, when it times come, when it comes time, it needs to be Lydia who either knows him or doesn't. And so it is something that no one else can do for you. And there's a limited window of time. Now, all of this sounds really doom and gloom. I understand. And there's a big part of it that, you know, it should put urgency in our hearts where we're not like, eh, things will pan out. Eh, as long as I keep attending, you know, house church. And as, as long as I do the bare minimum, I think, it, I think I'll be fine. Uh, I think we need to, you know, shift out of that. And we need to, it's biblical for us to have this sense of urgency, to, for us to have this sense of weight, like we are called to prepare. We're called to be ready, and no one's going to be able to do that for you. At the same time, the Bible also talks about, yes, things are going to be harder and darker, and it's going to be hard to persevere, and you're going to hold fast, and you're going to have to not give up, and you're going to have to ask for strength. You're going to have to cry out to the Lord. All these things are going to happen, and yet the picture that we see of the church in the end times, it's the most glorious picture that we see in the entire Bible. It's a church that understands that supernatural provision comes from him, that signs and wonders are still for today. It's a, it's a church that believes in the power of Christ, a church that is unafraid of persecution, a church that is okay with paying the cost. It's a church that knows no limits and is not intimidated by the enemy. It's not a church that is found like, oh my gosh, the world is coming and the, the darkness is... No, it's a church that is on the offensive. It's not on the defensive. It's a church that continues to advance. It's like yeast that is still making its way through the dough. It's not like yeast is like crowded in one corner, like, oh no, the dough is coming. No, it's like the yeast is making its way through the dough, right? That is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And so that's going to be the picture of the church as well. 
And I believe that's one of the things that God has called New Philly to be as well. A church that is yeast in the midst of dough. A church that knows who they are and knows what they've been given by the Lord. That knows him and God knows them. A church that is filled with intimacy, intentionality, understanding, and perseverance. And I feel like even in this past year, we've already seen a taste of that. Um, As I'm thinking about everything we've gone through in the last few years, whether it be like even personal things outside of the church, it has everything to do with this. It is not like like out of left field, this has nothing to do with where we're headed. No, this has everything to do with it. Um, I believe it has to do with building certain spiritual muscles that we need built up. Like maybe we're doing leg day all the time and we need to do arm day once in a while, you know? And so this is us building certain spiritual muscles that we haven't used. If we haven't gone through hardships, we're never going to learn to persevere when bigger things come our way. So if there's anything that you've, you've come out with in the past two years, hopefully it will be like, I can persevere. If I can make it through that, I can make it through something else. Like, not when just things are good, not just when things are easy, but even when things are hard. Like, I'll still hold fast. And that should give you some reassurance and some confidence. It's not only when things are easy that you should be encouraged. It's also when things are hard. And yet, instead of the Lord removing the difficulty, he gives you strength to persevere. And that is what builds a strong church. We don't want to be a flabby church. If there's no hardships, we will be a flabby church. No arms and no legs. It doesn't, you know, none of that. But if we go through different things together as a community, if our faith is tested um, through all these things, we will see a church that is able to withstand many more things even in the days to come. So that's the good news. The good news that it wasn't vain, that there's purpose to it, there's buildup to it, and you will see in the days to come, you'll see what this was about. You'll see what it, meant for you to have to hold on for you to have hope over and over again for you to have to encourage yourself over and over again for you to persevere through hardships you're going to see what all of that is about now i'm going to zoom out even further and i'm going to start wrapping things up with this so if there is going to be a generation that prepares for the way of the lord to return sometimes we feel like this is the end point too. We're like, this is the end. We made it. But there's something on the other side as well, right? <laughs> so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see at the very end of Revelation 1, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a whole city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is the triumphant church that has made it through the hardest tribulation, the hardest time all of humanity has experienced. It means harder than World War I, World War II, every depression, every famine, all of these things all put together. Harder than all those things is a church that comes out victorious on the other side. This is the, the people of God that are meeting their bridegroom as they're meeting a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And so this is 
not just the end point. It goes on forever and forever. So sometimes we look at just this part and we're fixated on this part. And this is our little blip right here. That's all it is. But we have an eternity to come and there is no end point. So when we think about sacrifices that are to be made, the priorities that we ought to have, the decisions that we make, the way that we spend the few years that we are here on this lifetime, the way that we spend this little blip right here and how that is going to affect all of this, it makes it a little bit easier. It gives you a little bit more perspective. Perhaps right now you're going through something, perhaps a, a decision that feels like it is towering over you. And it's like, there's, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. I don't know. This is going to change my entire life. Yes, it might, but it'll still be a blip right here. You still have an eternity to come. And so this is the mindset of a forerunner church. This is someone who lives not just with this lifestyle and sorry, this lifetime in mind, but the eternity to come as well. A church that isn't just thinking about the here and the now and my needs for today, but also the things that will affect an eternity to come as well. So uh, Pastor JP, when he preached last week, he talked about where all of this is headed and we are headed to a wedding. We're headed to a wedding, a feast that has no end. And he explained it over and over again. And people who are fasting here were like tortured. Um, he talked about food like all the time last week. Um, but yeah, we are headed towards a wedding feast. We're headed towards a banquet. And everything we've tasted, everything good we've tasted in this lifetime, it doesn't even compare to the things that are to come. It doesn't even compare. It is like miles apart from the things that are to come. This is where all of history is headed. We see in Revelation 19, 6, this is a cry that kind of arises, erupts. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So it's like a deafening sound. We're like, it shakes your rib cage, like, like, you know, like you can't think straight. It's that kind of sound, that kind of multitude crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angels said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of of God. So as a church, part of our calling and part of our vision, part of our direction, it will be, it will be to be a church that is preparing the way of the Lord. A church that is aware of the times, a church that is trained in wisdom and understanding, a church that puts prime priority on intimacy and building, um, cultivating intimacy with the Lord. It is a church that learns to persevere it is a church that prepares the way of the Lord. We're ultimately called to prepare the way for his return. As we are calling people to the feast, it is not just any feast. So when we talked about the three parts of the vision, the first part is a great, uh, the great commandment. So we ourselves are called to feast. Feast in his forgiveness, his presence, his closeness, his fellowship, his communion with us, his sufficiency. We're called to sit at the table in this lifetime and feast on that. And we're also called to call others into it 
as well. That is the Great Commission. Now, when we talk about the forerunner calling, we're saying this is not just a feast for this lifetime. It's a feast that is to come as well. It's a wedding supper of the Lamb, and we are called here to call others to that as well. Not just let's enjoy this lifetime together. It's let's enjoy eternity together. There's going to be a feast that awaits us. There's a sense of urgency and a weight that we are called to be prepared and to be waiting like the wise virgins people that know that he's coming whether he's taking long or not they know that he's coming and they've prepared themselves for that as well